Have you ever seen these guys that stand on the street corners and hold up giant signs? Repent. And then they have like a whole list of things. Hell is coming, you know, and, and list of maybe people who are most likely to go to hell. And then they've got these list of people and things like that. Well, there's a guy that I didn't realize this happened down south of, oh, I got my mic turned up. Um, I, uh, down south on Williston Road, there is a guy who comes up. And the reason why he catches my attention is because when Jody and I are going to work in the morning, uh, we, will, we will be um, coming up right at the overpass at 75 and Williston Road, and there will be this guy. Now, some days he's dressed in just regular street clothes, and he has like, I don't know, like 10 different posters, and he grabs one, and he brings it out to the road, and he's saying something going along the line. And of course, people are like flying at this point. People, there must be a million people that come in from Williston to go to work at Shands every, every week, because it's just a million cars. No one slows down. No one engages him, but he's out there. And then other days, he comes out in robes. He looks just like me with his white robe and the, and the stole on. I don't know what that's about. One of these days, I'm going to just stop and say, dude, tell me what, what this is about. What what are you trying to accomplish here? And I think that for a lot of us, when we think about repentance and we think about repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, uh, we think about guys like that. I know that uh, Turlington Plaza, there's, you know, there's, uh, is that right? Turlington Plaza, did I get that right? That there are, um, there are street preachers and some of them are pretty provocative. And there's this sense in which um, we are put off by those folks, aren't we? We're, we're, we're put off by them because we sense there is a, a, a judgment and a, um, I don't know, they're trying to be manipulative or they're trying to guilt us into something. And if there's anything that American culture is over, it's being guilted. You know, we're either lapsed Catholics or lapsed Baptists for the most part, and we've all had our share of guilt and we just are done with it, and we're not going to be manipulated in guilt. And so we, we put those, those people off. But I want to, I want to diverge from that image of, of a street uh, sign holder, repentance kind of a message. And I want to really get into the words of John the Baptist, because I think that even for me, it comes to this time every year, the second week of Advent, we know it's going to be John the Baptist. We know it's going to be the, the call to repentance. I think there's a sense in which in all of our collective minds, there can be a sense where we think, oh, you're talking about John's like that guy in, in Turlington Plaza that, that, that's always trying to provoke people to argument. And it's like that guy on Williston Road. Well, I want, you to, I want you to think a little bit differently about repentance because I think that John is not that street evangelist. He is very, very different. As a matter of fact, John is the, is the tip of the spear of all that God has been saying to the Old Testament people of God. And it's not just about judgment, although judgment is wrapped up in it. And there's one thing I want you to understand. There, there's a sense in which God's mercy and his judgment are wrapped up together. It's, it's like a two-edged sword. It can go either way. And I think that's why you, you sense that a little bit in this passage. But it's, it's not simply just a message of judgment that, that uh, John wants to bring. I uh, read a lot about Tim Keller this week. He's the Redeemer Presbyterian pastor. Um, Tim Keller is a wonderful preacher and a thinker of theology of, of, the, of the church. And, and Tim talks about the fact that there's this sense in which sometimes we approach repentance as religious repentance, which means to say that we're, we're fearful of God, 
Um, we're, we're, we're fearful of his judgment and we're hoping to do something that might earn his favor. So we're desperately working for God. But of course, that's not the gospel at all. We know that there is nothing we can do. We, we look back at the Old Testament and it's a, it's a story of over and over again, God's people failing to to live up to his standard, to be a holy people as he calls us to be. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, they, 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 can't, they can't help but, but engage in the one thing that God has commanded them not to do, which is to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so they eat of it, and we're told that they are, they're cursed. God puts a curse on them. Thorn, you know, the thorns and thistles for the man to work and labor, the wife to, to the woman to, to, to give birth and childbearing and all that goes with that, the curse is laid out. Of course, God makes a provision for them, but he, he still judges them for their sin and they're exiled from the Garden of Eden. And there's a, a, a giant angel that's placed there with a, a fiery sword, better than any lightsaber imaginable this is this is a flaming sword scott that that the lord places and he he call, he, he exiles adam and eve from the garden of eden but now it's interesting because when you read uh, isaiah 11 that was just read for us by don cox you'll notice that that there's this this prophetic word that isaiah gets of, of this, the lion and the lamb lying down and the cow and the bear grazing together and the little child playing by the, the den of the asp, the, the viper, the snake, some sort, poisonous. It's almost like Eden restored. And so even while there is this theme of exile that runs through the Old Testament, there's also this prophetic word of restoration for those, for God will bring about his restoration. He will bring back the remnant. If you go on to the next verse that we ended on, verse 11 in Isaiah 11, you'll notice the next verse talks about God gathering the remnant from all the nations, bringing together his people. And the root of Jesse, well, who's Jesse? Jesse's the father of David, the, king, the greatest king of Israel. But, but the prophet Isaiah is not saying that God's going to raise David from the dead. He's not going to reincarnate David. But yet the son of David, the greatest of all, the king of kings and lord of lords, will come and establish a throne that Daniel, the prophet, will say will have no end. Not only will it demolish all the other kingdoms of the world, but that it will be established as a kingdom that will never end. This is the promise of restoration that is woven in with judgment and exile for the people of Israel. The greatest exile, of course, for Israel was when they were carried off to Babylon for their sins, for their wrongdoing, for their idolatry, for their unfaithfulness to the God who had called them out, given them the promised land. See, they, they depended upon other armies. They depended upon the army of Egypt, for instance, to protect them against the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And God said, no, you're, you will be judged for your sin. God takes sin very seriously. But even as he promises that he must judge our sin, there's also woven in the word of mercy. You see, Adam and Eve where yes, they were cursed and they were cast out of the garden, but they weren't killed immediately. They were allowed to live. Exiled, 
but mercifully to allow to live. We are, in some sense, living still in that exiled world, right? So this is where we find ourselves. It is into this hope of restoration and this promise that there will be a king and a kingdom coming, a, a, a root out of Jesse from the line of David, from David, King David's line, there will come this one who will restore all things. And so there's this hope of a new kingdom and a new king and a return out of exile to the promised land that goes on in the hearts and minds of the people. So it's that that's the background for what John says when he comes. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You see, we, we tend to work on the repentance word, but we, we miss the second part of it. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. This kingdom has been inaugurated. This kingdom is beginning. It's very close. It's at hand. And you need to get ready. When Bishop James O'Chael, our, our partner diocese in southern Nianza, Kenya, uh, uh, used to be we, uh, James and I and Victoria Harris and a few of us, Tony Ladd, have been over to visit him. It used to be about a five, I don't know, five or six hour drive from Kasumu down to southern Nianza. James is sitting up in the balcony. That's why I'm looking up there to him. And uh, this, it was terrible. I mean, ruts, you were praying for a rut. Okay, the, the road was horrible. You have to have four-wheel drive cars because there's no way for a two-wheel drive car to possibly make this trip. To, from Kisumu down to Southern Nianza. Then the prime minister was going to visit Southern Nianza. Well, guess what happened? A miracle occurred. They paved the road. And the last time I went to Kenya, guess what? That six-hour trip now became about an hour-and-a-half trip with pavement and straight lines and, and all the ruts removed. You see, when someone's important is coming, we get the road, you know. The president, the, the owner of the Jaguars moved to the little part of, the, of Jacksonville that we lived in. And all of a sudden, you know, we lived on the poor side of the road, but Santa, San Marco Boulevard. But, but all of a sudden, the road got repaved. It was amazing because we had to make room for this important person. And this is what John is proclaiming, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The restoration that we've been talking about. Yes, we're living in exile. Yes, our, our, the poor are being taken advantage of and treated unrighteously. And they're crying out for justice. All these things are true. The world is a broken place. We are living in exile. And yet, John says, I come proclaiming that the kingdom of God is at hand. So get ready. Prepare yourselves. Repentance isn't a bad thing in the life of a believer. As a matter of fact, it's a very good thing. Yes, we know the judgment of God. We know that our sin, God cannot be in the presence of our sin. But that is why Christ has come and redeemed us. I love it. This week I've been reading for my doctoral class. And one of the, the commentators talked about the fact that, that you know what? Because God had spared Adam and Eve, didn't kill them, and just cast them out of the Garden of Eden, guess what? His son Jesus could come into the world and face down that sordid angel and do battle on our behalf and make a way for us to re-enter into the blessed rest of God in Christ. 
Repentance isn't a bad thing, and, and I want you to see that in the, in the, in the context of what, we're, what, we're, what we've got there. John uh, uh, is actually quoting from Isaiah, the prophet, but not from Isaiah 13, or 11, rather. He's quoting from Isaiah chapter 40, which is the part of the book of Isaiah where God has been speaking the judgment over, over Israel. They're about to go into exile, into Babylon, But even in the midst of being projected that they're going to go into Babylon for 70 years, here comes the voice of mercy and grace in God. And Isaiah proclaims in Isaiah 40, starting with verse 1, Comfort, comfort my people. Say your God, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare, that is her time of struggle, is ended. And that her iniquity is pardoned. And she will receive from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Imagine if the governor of the state of Florida announced a day of amnesty. Now, I don't mean like murder and, you know, really horrible crimes. But just, you know, you know for outstanding, you know, parking tickets or speeding tickets or for tax evasion, uh, for all the, the things that we do that we're shameful for. But what if he declared a day of amnesty? If you appear at the court on this date uh, and, and acknowledge what you've done wrong and have contrition for your wrongdoing, in other words, deep sorrow for what you've done, you'll be forgiven. Well, how many of us would show up and don't even think, say you would have nothing to ask amnesty for? Because you, you know there's things out there. Your past can catch up to you, right? But imagine, but we'd be, all, we'd be skeptical, of course. We'd be fearful that, you know, we're going to confess our sins and then all of a sudden here comes the handcuffs. But what if it was true? What, what, if, what if you could be forgiven for those things? I mean, wouldn't we want to go and, 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 and confess those things and, and, to, and to receive that, that pardon, that amnesty from all of our crimes? Of course we would. So, so, so when, when John comes proclaiming, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, it's... it's the king is coming. The restoration is being offered. Now is the time to prepare yourselves. Now is the time not to hide and try to, and try to protect yourselves, but rather to, to, to confess your sins, to fall on the mercy of God, to run to his salvation and receive amnesty, receive forgiveness. This is, this is the purpose of repentance in the life of a believer. Martin Luther said that, that, that repentance is God's purpose for Christians to practice daily in their lives. It's the evidence that we're continuing to grow in holiness and righteousness. Have you ever had a mentor or a coach or a parent or a grandparent that they just loved you so well that they made you want to be better? Not because you were afraid of their rebuke when you did wrong, but because you loved them so much, they provoked you to love and good deeds. That you just wanted to do better. That was my grandfather. 
He just lived such a way that, that I wanted to be a better man because of his witness. Maybe it was a coach or a mentor or a teacher or a parent. They, they're just, we'll take that to the millionth degree and that's the holiness and the beauty of God that provokes us to want to grow in holiness our lives. The greatest picture of, of repentance that I find in the New Testament is, is um, Isaiah 6, the same prophet Isaiah, and he, he has this vision of the, 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 of the King of kings, the Lord of lords, coming into the temple, and the train of his robe is, is huge, and, and God is so holy and so beautiful, And Isaiah says, I am, whoa, whoa, <laughs> I'm undone. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And I have seen the glory of God. Friends, that's, that's, that's the holy repentance. That's gospel repentance. That's not, that's not repenting because you're afraid of God's wrath and you're hoping desperately to do something to earn his favor. This is a love response in the face of a holy God. Tim Keller puts it this way, repentance is the way we make progress in the Christian life. Indeed, pervasive all of life, repentance is the best sign that we are growing deeply and rapidly into the character of Jesus. I'm told George Whitfield had a way of examining himself daily. He wanted to grow in holiness. You see, there's a, there's a misnomer somehow that, you know, you become a, a, a mature Christian. You don't have a whole lot to confess. Not the case. The more you grow in holiness, the more you realize how much you have to repent of. That's why I've told this story before, but I was playing golf with a, a guy that thought himself to be a mature Christian. And he, he confessed to me he didn't like our service because we had to do the confessional every week. And he said, frankly, there's just some weeks I don't feel like I have anything to confess. At that moment, I got out of the golf cart and I walked away because I didn't want to get struck by lightning when he got struck. Now, that may sound like a bummer to think that you will, as you grow as a Christian, you're going to be more convicted of your sin. But, but, but remember what John says. He says, I come to baptize you with water, but he who's coming after me baptizes you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. That's like a refiner's fire. It's like what you'd use to heat up precious metals to purify them. And if I, if I know that I'm, I'm not going to be judged for my sin because I've fallen on the mercy of Christ and he has faced the, the fiery angel for me, then I don't, need not be afraid. And I'm simply coming because I want to respond in love and to become more holy as he is holy. See, it changes everything. So this is what Whitfield would, would, how he would examine himself. He would ask himself four questions. And they, I won't go into the whole detail or I'll make it available for you later. But he, he, he thought in terms of examining himself with regard to humility. Am I a humble person? And secondly, he, he examined himself with regard to burning love. 
say, versus indifference. Wise courage versus anxiety. See, there's so many things we avoid out of fear. And then lastly, godly motivations. What he called a single eye to please the Lord. I like what Keller was talking about. He said that, uh, he said, you know, the reality is I lie. And not, not that I just boldly tell lies, but I, I am deceptive. He said, and I find myself, and this is helpful, I think, for those of us who easily get discouraged because you've repented. My daughter, Charlie, called me this week about a, a young lady that was repenting of some sexual sin in her life and wanting to change and, and, and yet recognizing how hard that would be. And oftentimes we can be discouraged by the fact that we repent over and over again the same things. And this is what Keller said. He says, I, I, I'm dishonest. I, I tell falsehoods. He said, but the reality is that that's a very superficial, shallow kind of repentance. He said, deep repentance asks the harder question, why do I lie? Why do I deceive? Why do I tell falsehoods? And what Keller said is the reality is I don't tell the full truth because I'm afraid that people will reject me. I'm afraid that they won't like me if I tell them the truth and I desperately need them to like me. Well, you see, the deeper issue is not lying. It's the idolatry of wanting to please other people, wanting to be what people need you to be, to say what you'll be. And the same is true for other addictions in our lives. Not just, and if you know anybody that's gone through an addiction recovery program, you know it's not about the alcohol, it's not about the drugs, it's not about the sex, it's about what's underneath it that drives the addiction. What's the idol? What's the, what's the, the need that is greater than my need to be holy like my God, to strive for holiness, to seek? That, my friends, will bring us to godly gospel-centered repentance. Now you notice that the, the sharpest rebuke doesn't come fr- to the crowds. The crowds come forward and they are um, repenting and they're confessing their sins because they know the king is coming and they want to receive his mercy and grace. But who receives the rebuke? It's the Sadducees and the Pharisees, the religious people. Us. And what does Jesus say? You brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Keep fruits, have produce fruits in keeping with repentance. You see, that amnesty day, you're thinking, well, somebody could just lie and say they're, I'm so sorry, you know, we've seen it a million times, and then go right back. But this is the Lord. He knows our motives. He knows our hearts. He knows if we're truly contrite, and sorrowful for our sins. But as Father James likes to remind us, we love to confess as Anglicans, but we don't always like to change. And what we're called to do is to change our behavior, to produce works in keeping with repentance. You see, as religious people, our tendency is to build systems by which we justify ourselves. With the gospel, there is no self-justification. 
There's no spiritual pedigree. There's no spiritual, there, you, you, you can't have done enough to, you, you can't have a godly enough grandmother or, or, or have served in a particular way. There's, there's nothing to justify ourselves. We all come completely without merit before the throne of God. And we have to cry out like Isaiah, woe is me, I'm undone. For I live among a people, I have unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. And I've seen the glory of God. For those who will not run to Jesus, the mark of judgment remains. And you can't avoid it in John's message. For those who will try to self-justify and refuse to fall on Christ's mercy, it remains the, the, the justice is before us. It, the axe is at the tree. He, want, he will separate the wheat from the chaff. Yes, there is a judgment. God cannot be in the presence of sin. He must judge sin. But he has provided his son to take that judgment and punishment for us. And guess what? That same Jesus who suffered our punishment and took the wrath of God for us has been raised from the dead and is King of kings of, and is Lord of lords. And he is coming back. And we, we who've run to Jesus for mercy, we're simply preparing the way. It's the work of the Holy Spirit in us. But it's a godly desire to grow to be like Christ, not for fear that he won't be pleased with us, but because we know he is pleased. And we want to grow and we want to be prepared and we want to, we want to be about bringing in this reign and this new age. You see, the Old Testament didn't understand that we're living in the in-between time. Yes, the kingdom has been inaugurated. The king has come. We will celebrate his birth in two weeks. We'll remember that Christ came into our world, but his kingdom has not been completed yet. And so we live as those seeking to be representatives of the kingdom, holy people, that we might usher in, that we might be those who prepare the way, that we might be those who proclaim that the king is offering amnesty and he himself has taken judgment and he offers us his Holy Spirit and the fire of his baptism to refine us. Let's pray. Father, so weird to be talking about sin and judgment and repentance while well, the world is busy wrapping presents and preparing for Christmas morning. But Lord, we give you thanks that you ask us to prepare for you and that you give us a means of preparation. Lord, I pray that we would repent, but not as those who fear God's wrath, but rather as those who know his love and seek to reflect his beauty. Bless us as we walk through this season. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.